Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Javi Miller Estrada. Javi, how are you doing? I'm good, Corey, man. It's it's kind of surreal to be on the other side since you've been on my podcast <laughs> yeah. twice now. So we get to flip yes. flip the roles here. I'm return, returning the favor here. Yes, I've been a guest on Javi's podcast twice, talking about creatine and supplements. And so it's good to have you on my podcast. But my podcast didn't exist when I was on yours, I don't think. No, it didn't yet. Yeah. So it's we've moved to a different place now. So yeah, cool. yes. Yeah. So your podcast has been rebranded since then, mm-hmm. and is ne- well, it's still the Adaptable Athlete Podcast. Yeah, it was or the Athlete you, Blueprint, and then now right. it's the Adaptable Athlete Podcast. Now right. it is the Adaptable Athlete mm-hmm. under the guise of a company you've joined since then, right? In emergence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's go from there. Tell the listener who you are you know, your professional history and yeah, everything you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we'll start in a little bit of a nonlinear place. Well, since you just mentioned emergence, (laughs) (laughs) but so with the emergence piece, emergence is geared towards trying to bring more attention and more education to a modern approach to skill acquisition. Traditionally, skill has been viewed as this asymmetrical relationship where the athlete does something in practice. And I'm sure we'll get into all that. They do something in isolation devoid Mm -hmm. of all the factors that they're actually going to potentially see in a game. And then they transfer that. And so we're just trying to bridge the gap with some of the practical stuff and then the the theoretical stuff, which can be Mm -hmm. a little bit difficult, a little bit dense. So that's what we do at Emergence. The podcast is geared around a lot of those conversations. Most of them are going to be conversations just like you and I are having with other coaches and practitioners. Anybody from a chiropractor to a sports psychologist to a sport coach and everything in between a coach or trainer, whoever works with athletes as their day-to-day, sometimes researchers as well. So that's kind of the idea of the podcast and that's the idea of Emergence. We offer online courses to try to help bridge that gap and also mentorship through the Movement Academy. And I'm sure some stuff we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, as for, absolutely. <laughs> as for me... The other part of what I do is a performance center called Ignite Performance, which is located in Chandler, Arizona. Ironically, we're having some Iowa type weather, even (laughs) though we normally have over 300 (laughs) days of sunshine. And in that facility, it's co-owned by myself and Rob Gambardella, my business partner. And then we provide performance training, you know, your your speed, agility, it's obviously done a little bit different way, speed, agility, strength, nutrition coaching, just trying to address the athlete holistically. Primarily working with, you know, high school is really our bread and butter. We do also work with middle school, college, and then professional athletes as well. So that's what I do day to day. Happy to jump off at any other point you want, but that's kind of what I'm doing every day in between traveling and eating and posting that on Instagram. But that's pretty much what I do. (laughs) How long have you owned that facility? Was that like your first job out of like school or were there any other things in the meantime? Yeah. So I went to Arizona State University. Go Devils. We're now in the Big 12 now. I don't know if you follow the college football yeah. expansion. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to a road trip out to, to like, what is it? Manhattan, Kansas. It's Kansas mm, State or yes. those other random places. Come but to Ames. Come to Iowa. Yeah, go to, that, go to- <laughs> now that I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll meet you there. But so I, I went to ASU and then after 
well, I guess what, backing it up a little bit, because I do think this is probably relevant for our conversation. But, you know, I played sports growing up, much like a lot mm-hmm. of people who are probably listening to this to yeah. varying degrees of success. But where kind of a key pivot point, a key kind of moment for me was becoming injured. It was becoming this athlete who, you know, tore his ACL. Initially, I tore my meniscus, ended up having four knee surgeries, didn't end up having the career I wanted to and was able to kind of reflect on my experience from a training standpoint. And just, you know, I appreciate everybody who worked with me, but there's some things that I would have liked to have done differently. So fast forward, you know, I graduate college and trying to figure out what I want to do. I ended up working in a few physical therapy clinics and just kind of learning that side. And I always identified, I knew there was this bond between me and people who have been injured, people who, you know, there's more than just the physical aspect of it, right? There's a cognitive, the psycho, psychological yeah. aspect of it, which I experienced directly. So I just felt mm-hmm. that was of a calling for me to work with people. Thought maybe I wanted to do the physical therapy route. Some things that I like about the profession, some things I don't. Long <laughs> yeah. story short, I guess wrapping it up, I ended up going into more the strength and conditioning yeah. route. My initial exposure was working with athletes who, or just general population after getting my CSCS that were maybe making that transition between how do I become a regular person again? I was Mm -hmm. in physical therapy. I had a knee replacement. I had an ACL surgery. I had a a labor repair. What can I now do when insurance has failed me, when I've used all my visits, right? That's a larger conversation, but what do I do when I have 20 visits? I'm an athlete and I've exhausted my 20 visits. How can I now get back to playing football every day? And that's what I started to work with, which was a great base because I learned to be very good at progressions, regressions. I learned to be able to try to understand like what that person is walking in with to that session. It's different every day. And um, then from that point on, um, got more into the general fitness and, and specifically performance training working a lot with athletes and then eventually went on my own and then eventually joined forces for Ignite Performance, which I have yeah. now owned for five years. So kind of been a long winding journey. In between yeah. that, I volunteered at an at a ER hospital for a year, which I think lent me an interesting perspective because there you see people truly at their worst. You see people uh, yeah. that are literally at their worst. So it kind of makes working with an athlete who's had a bad day a little bit different. Yeah, I guess some and, perspective. Yeah, so that's yeah. how I got here. That that so ER. What what was your role? Like you just did whatever they needed, or I just did whatever. Mainly walk around, <laughs> transport patients. I, I I wanted to get that experience again because I was at a time in my life where I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe PA was the route, sure. and um, I remember doing that after I had a, a job and then I did that after once a week for like four hours to like 1am yeah. and yeah. just walking the hallways of a hospital, just being mm. a, a zombie. And and the place that I did that at was in a the, like inner city area of Phoenix. So you saw some things that were very different. And so yeah. I, I feel like it's lent to, lent me to have a different perspective on just how I work with people. Yeah. That's a really interesting experience for sure. But like you mentioned the winding road, like all those varied experiences are are really important because they do lend different perspectives. They give you different viewpoints. They give you different experiences. And, you know, I think every coach at some point realizes the ben- how beneficial that is. And you even, even if you just, you know, you mentioned the, the range of athletes that you work with, that's beneficial too. And the, but the fact that you did go through this return to 
play or performance process is also really critical. And it, it sounds like you did not have a great experience with that. And I, yep, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I would say that, you know, and the people that helped me were great people. It's just, I feel like there was a limitation and I could sense that <clears throat> the things that I wanted to do on the, on like, for example, for basketball, hmm. that I was maybe physically cleared to do, I could not. And so there's this gap, looking back on it, between you know what I'm perceiving and what I'm actually acting on, and how my body is responding to that. And just the idea of you know when you, when you go through something like this that's traumatic, you can traumatic to a 16 year old, obviously, you know, yeah. I still was healthy, but it's relative, right? And yeah, for sure. dealing with that emotionally and not necessarily knowing how to express it, I think was, you know, damaging in a way, but obviously I wouldn't have led me to where I'm at. So I wouldn't change it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a great bridge to the the topic of the day, which is this return to play process. And you already highlighted an aspect of this that is it's becoming very, you know, people are aware of this fact that like rehab post-injury, like acute rehab process does not get you ready to come back to your sport. So that gap has been identified. People are trying to make progress with filling that gap. Yet there's still a ton of gray area because, well, most often the, the person that needs to fill that gap or will fill that gap is the strength and conditioning or sports performance professional. Well, if they're not, you know, there's scope of practice, people bring up that, are they qualified? Well, if someone doesn't do it, then no one really is doing it if they're not going to see a physical therapist. So there's that gap that's been identified. And a lot of, you know, people are speaking into that and they're trying to do a better job, which is all good. But where we're going to go today is to even kind of have a, a smaller a, a bridge within that to, to fill a gap or, or bridge the gap within this, you know, you've done the acute rehab, you are cleared to start getting yourself mentally and physically prepared to return to sport. And how do we go about that process? That's where we're going, going to go today. So Javi, why don't you go ahead and just start with your take on this process, your philosophy, what lens are you looking through, and what are some areas that you think can be improved and addressed when it comes to this return to play process? Yeah, that's, so that's I mean, it's a passion, topic I'm very passionate about, and, and mm-hmm. I, I do agree with you that there's this acknowledge, acknowledgement of mm-hmm. this gap, but we also need to acknowledge that the current methods that we're doing are, in my opinion, not adequate. And depending on what you read for ACL re-injuries, for example, within like 20 exposures, there's like a 20% or up to 30% re-injury rate, whether it's the same side or a different side. And obviously with all the advancements we've made from a technological side, from surgeries, there's still something that is missing. Mm. And there's just having experienced it, right? You can check all these boxes, right? If I want to paint a picture for the listener here, it's like, okay, we go from physical therapy for those of us who have experienced physical therapy or rehab of some kind, that environment, if we think of some of the exercises, lunges, squats, you know, band work, step ups, things like that, it's a typical program with not a lot of variability. And I know there's challenges to that for the physical therapist. I do want to acknowledge that, but it's a very 
what I would say, a sterile environment, meaning that everything is very controlled. And I do acknowledge that there are certain parts of the rehab process that need to be controlled, right? Acute post-op, when there's limited range of motion and there's tissue healing involved, I totally get that. But contrast that with the environment of sport. Your sport was football, correct? Yep. So take going from that environment and maybe late stage rehab, we're doing like a hop test, we're doing some ladder work or something like that, or sprinting linearly, perhaps, maybe if we're lucky if there's turf space. Now contrast that with what you're going to experience in football. When someone is physically trying to hit you as hard as possible, Mm -hmm. there are Mm -hmm. fans in the stands, maybe your Mm -hmm. family, maybe your girlfriend, whatever it may be. You are going through you know, a playbook, maybe learning some new plays, you have the stress of school. And so there's a huge gap from the unpredictability and the chaotic nature of what we will experience versus what they experience in physical therapy. So there's a massive gap. So I think there are certain ways to bridge that gap. So that athlete is not overwhelmed that in that initial first 20 exposures, whether it be practice, whether it be a game, and I think there's many ways to do it. I'm happy to jump off into in, into any of those. I think what underpins my theory and my view of human movement is going to mm-hmm. be understanding that the environment is not separate from the problem. I think that's the biggest difference between what is traditionally being taught and what we would call in like ecological dynamics and, and how we view the environment. We view that environment athlete relationship as inseparable. So mm-hmm. meaning that a skill if we are trying to help our athletes become more skillful, it is directly tied to what they do, right? We all kind of acknowledge the difference in, say, like an NFL combine program. If someone wants a 40-yard dash, we know that's not football, right? We know that's not what they're going to experience. So they do a 5-10-5 agility, yeah. something like that, right? And the very poor correlation of combine success and NFL success pretty much shows that, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, we just because you're good at these things doesn't mean you're going to be a successful football player. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, so yeah. we know that there's something missing. And, and I believe, and there's um, a lot of theory behind it and research behind it, that the athlete develops skill within context. So if we're looking at an athlete who is coming off of an, an injury, we understand that skill is directly tied to the environment. It's a relationship. That relationship changes once that athlete is removed from their environment. So if I remove that athlete for nine to 12 months from their playing environment, I now need to help them become skillful again. Skill is not something that we just hold in our back pocket, right? It's not like riding a bike, okay? Because people are probably not trying to hit you when you're coming off of that bike. Even if you were riding a bike, right? You would have to adapt and adjust your perception, oh, the, the gravel is different, right? The ground is different. I'm running on concrete. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this with a, a really bad bike lane. It's, you know, there's going to be some differences. So yeah. if we understand that skill isn't something that you just hold in your pocket for, for perpetuity and, and, and deploy whenever you want, then it's our job or someone's job anyway, to be yeah. able to help guide that athlete towards becoming skillful again. Yeah. And I just want to kind of clarify or or drill a little deeper with that. When you're talking about skill, I think some of the good intentions of this trying to bridge the gap to return to play and maybe still not quite getting the athlete ready Mm -hmm. and the implementation of certain strategies come when we're looking really close at just movement patterns. Like, oh, the athlete can execute these type of movement patterns around cones or you know if like i think we would both agree that if you're playing a chaotic sport like football like soccer or we'll probably talk volleyball today really any field and court based sport mm-hmm. 
where there's decisions that need to be made in the moment. It's unpredictable. You are performing multiple and many different types of movement patterns. If we get an athlete doing some multi-directional work prior to them returning to competition or full-on practice, that's better than not doing it. But I think where people would stop and have stopped, and maybe you can tell me if I'm off on my on my thinking here, what I've seen is they will stop at just the, if they can perform the, these movement patterns in a way that I deem okay as the coach or the practitioner, then they're good and they're ready. And I think you and I would both agree, we still need to take some extra steps there. So is that be, that'd be a good assessment of, I guess, what you're referring to? That's exactly, yeah. I think that's a great way to, and a succinct way to, to discuss it because, you know, biomechanics do matter, right? It, it's not like saying, we are never going to acknowledge that there's certain angles and positions that hopefully our athletes get in. Like if you're a, a football player and you're doing a power cut, your base of support matters, right? Mm-hmm. If you are doing, working on a like lateral change of direction, right? You see a lot of these protocols and it's like we're working on lateral change of direction today or, or lateral, whatever, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But the move, the biomechanics matter, but it's how they emerge, right? It's how those constraints aided in the emergence of the, the the biomechanic that you want displayed. And so often we look at the end product. We look at the end product. We don't ask how or why. It's kind of like in, you know, we hear in like with all the catapult and GPS tracking data, like someone ran 21 miles an hour. That's great. But how did they do it? What was the play? What was the situation? What quarter was it? And just like we want to know the end result here, like can we get to a nice good deceleration angle? But can you do that while having that athlete judge when to do it? Can they do it with someone pursuing <laughs> mm-hmm. them? And there mm-hmm. are ways to do it without overwhelming yeah. the, the athlete. And, and I think yeah. to speak to your point, I, so much of rehab and sports performance in general is looked through a motor system lens, angles, muscles, joints, right? How much force is produced. But there's other lenses that we can view it to. We can look at the perceptual lens. What are they seeing? We can look mm-hmm. at it from like, and it's all tied together. It's not separate. A cognitive lens. What are they thinking? Like, how are they feeling? And all of these are tied together and these should be part of the, the rehab return to play process. Yeah. And, you know, going with your power cut example, you know, m- maybe a, a part of the rehab process and progression of activities would could be you know, having an athlete do a five to 10 yard lead in and doing a power cut at a cone. I think people would maybe even, again, just stop there and say, oh, if I can do this and be confident with it and be explosive and hit the KPIs of the movement that you want to see, is that good enough? Well, the, here's the, the thing with something like that versus an athlete needing to perform a power cut in response to something, in response to a defender or someone else in the activity, is if someone else is in this activity, the athlete cannot take preparatory measures to basically to get their body ready to make the cut. You can't do it. If you know where and when you're going to make a cut, you will prep your body angles and postures and kinemat- joint kinematics to make that cut. If you can't do that, it's fundamentally a different movement pattern. It might 100%. look the same. But because you cannot prep your body to make that specific cut, you may not even be able to make the cut on the preferred leg that you want. And that there's there, like that's a gap there. Like that's where 
we, I think, would agree that those things need to be addressed in a return to play scenario before putting someone in there. And yes, you could maybe like think from a practice perspective, let's say I got injured, I'm going back to football practice, I cleared the jump test, the hop test, the force production test, whatever it may be. So maybe they're like, all right, Corey, you're going to do just individual period. The next week, you're just going to do indie plus seven on seven and just progress me that way. There probably still needs to be something there to, again, make sure that someone's ready. So let's do this next as far as diving into this and how to apply. Take, take a typical where someone might end with that like acute rehab process with a physical therapist, the, the place where they might stop and the things that they, by and large, are able to do or have done. And then where, I guess, you've seen tra- quote-unquote traditional RTP protocols or programs go and contrast that to where you might change things or adapt things or tweak things. And you can use whatever, if you want to use a specific ACL or if you have a case study that you've done, that's totally fine. Okay. I do want to address that, but I do want to also, if we can go back and talk about, I think two topics that is important for the listener to, for to sure. try to grasp. Yeah. One of them is this idea of variability. And I think when you have something where the cone is in place, right? I guess it would be better if you move the cone every rep. This idea of variability and repetition without repetition. And I think that's like, again, an underpinning thing for people to understand. Meaning that in sport, like just to simplify in sport, things are never going to be the same, right? The idea of no man stepping in the same river twice applies to sport, right? The constraints are different. The, The athlete is different. The play is different. The, the temperature is different, right? The ambient light is different. And so it's very important to understand that when we go through the typical rehab process is that it's typically done, rote repetitious, let's perfect this one thing. In ecological dynamics, they might say, like have this deep attractor state, basically this one stable pattern of movement. Well, what happens when you can't use that? Because as mm-hmm. you already acknowledged, those patterns are very different. And you know, there, there's research that's came out a number of years ago about a ball projection machine in, in cricket, how a ball projection machine versus a live bowler. It, they are two fundamentally two different kinematic patterns. And that's, I think, very important for people to understand. So this idea of variability will happen in sport. And it can be introduced fairly on, even before I ever see an athlete, because I won't see them. I'm not a physical therapist. I won't see them till several months out. But if you're a physical therapist, maybe one thing you can change is just doing lunge from lunges from multiple positions, changing box height, changing the, like that. That's an easy change. There's more information on that too. We have a a weight room course, but that's just one thing that you can kind of integrate in your strength conditioning. And then another one is this idea. And you talked about you didn't really say it, but you, I think you alluded to about affordance perception, meaning mm-hmm. that what an athlete sees is going to be affected by their injuries. Yeah. I will then tie it into a, to one of the case studies we had, but yeah, for sure. I have this athlete who I presented on and he was a football player, tight end, high level recruit, and now is currently in college at a major D1 university. Tore his ACL in, in, in practice at football and then came in and then we started to incorporate some of these concepts that I'm sure we'll talk about and we alluded to are instead of him necessarily cutting at a cone, he's going to do it at me, right? And that doesn't mean I'm going to go 100%, which is, is a whole nother, another topic we can get into as well, potentially. But you could notice that he was not accepting the affordance or essentially the invitation, the choice, the option, however you want to talk about it, to cut hard off his left leg because that was his, his injured side, right? 
And so that's a gap that if we don't address in his movement system, and that continues to carry over, if we just say, oh, it'll work itself out, well, what if it doesn't? Mm-hmm. Not only could that lead to a compensation on his right side, right? Because he's only cutting off his right side. He's probably not going to be as effective as a football player. So these are things where as a coach and just conceptually, you can start to pick up on and understand that an athlete is not necessarily the same. Using my own example, I remember specifically coming off of, I think my third knee surgery where there was just, I would not do a spin move off of my left leg because my left ACL was my last one. Just wouldn't do it. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Was I cleared to do it? By all intents and purposes, yes, but I just, I wouldn't do it. I did not feel comfortable doing it. And that affects an athlete in, in, in many ways. So that's just something I wanted to definitely address before we get into the case study. Yeah. So I, I want to ask sure. one question with that. And this is, you know, because there's aspects of this process I'm not familiar with because I'm not, again, I'm not a physical therapist. It wasn't part of my study. I haven't been in that scenario a lot. Let's say, you, you know, you mentioned an athlete who avoids cutting on a left leg despite being cleared. Is it common where an athlete passes these physical tests by all measures, whether that be a hop test, whether that be like a quad force production, rate of force production test on like an isokinetic dynamometer or something like that? Is it common where they pass those with flying colors? And again, physically, structurally, everything seems to be on par with the uninjured leg or maybe previous measures. And yet when they get in those scenarios, it doesn't manifest itself that way. Is that common? In my experience, I would say it's definitely not uncommon. It happens. And that's where, again, this gap in understanding like sport movement and what the athlete is experiencing, because you can do something a lot of the times when you're directed to, when you can produce enough force. But then if you do it in an alive situation. That's the gap. That is, is that athlete going to make that choice? Because back to the cone example, if you say cut to your left on a cone, they're going to do that. In addition to that, they have to know like when to utilize that. So if I, one thing I might do, if I know he is not this particular athlete wanting to cut on his left leg and I am his opponent and it's a simple, you have the ball, get five to seven yards. I will probably position myself in a way that highlights that affordance, that opportunity Mm -hmm. for him to cut off his less leg. I'm going to do that to try to guide him. It's another important concept is where I'm not telling him what to do. I'm trying to basically highlight an option for him to choose because me telling him what to do is very different than an athlete doing it on their own. I've seen this. I've seen this before I got into not even with injured, you know, rehabilitating return to play athletes where I've done something with an athlete isolated. And I've been guilty of this, right? And then you go and you do it and you see it. Mm-hmm. You're like, what the hell just happened? Because nothing <laughs> that I worked on is actually mm-hmm. emerging in mm-hmm. play. Like yeah. we've seen that. And it's the yeah. same thing as we go back to the NFL combine. If that 5-10-5 test was so good, then how come it's, how come that is not the, the indicator of the best running backs, you know, or the best wide receivers? So yeah, I do think it's fairly common. I can't say it with certainty, but I will say that I have seen it where someone looks great and all the while, I'm trying to communicate with their healthcare provider, right? I'm not going rogue. I'm, not, I'm trying to communicate and yeah. establish a, a, a line of communication where I think is very important. But I have seen it where they look great and they're at this level. And then you see this doesn't look so great to me. 
Yeah, or just the athlete you can tell is apprehensive. Yes. You know, like they know they pass these things. Hopefully at the end of that kind of more acute process, feel confident in the structural integrity of the affected area. Yet, if it's not emerging or showing up in a contextually relevant scenario, there's still work to be done, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's dive into like that work a little bit more closely. So take us through how you would structure the process uh, again from that kind of just getting done with the acute physical therapy and you can even just make it again a specific injury maybe you're trying to like work on a specific set of skills or whatever it may be just walk us through what that would look like or could look like Mm -hmm. in the ideal situation i would have some sort of there'd be some kind of overlap like if we think of like a a pie chart, right? At the beginning, mm. 90% or more, maybe 100% is going to be with their healthcare provider, their, their, whoever does that work. And then as they advance, that pie chart changes and they're involved with me. So in an ideal situation, I am communicating with the physical therapist because there are just certain things that they can legally do that I can't legally do. I can't stick needles in someone if they need it or I can't do it. You know, yeah. it's, And I wouldn't feel comfortable with that anyway. I don't know how uh, people like to do that. It's not my thing. Yeah, but yeah. So ideally, I'm establishing some sort of communication so I can yeah, understand. Sure. Hopefully, that physical therapist has pushed them to a point that the kid gloves have been taken off a little bit from the strength and conditioning standpoint. That doesn't always happen, unfortunately. So that will determine, okay, what do I have to maybe do? Do I have to just start developing other strength characteristics? Like max strength is still important. It's not like it's not important. We still do that. We may not like do a one rep max squat, for example, but they need to be pushed, right? They're going to be applying heavy forces into the ground. That's something that needs to be addressed. So that's something that we, we do address. From a movement standpoint, I'm constantly evaluating. If they have film, that even better, right? I can see what happened. I can see how they moved before. But I'm constantly evaluating from the time they step in the door. An athlete steps into my door. We'll do a warm-up. Our warm-up doesn't look like everybody else's. We may have them do what we call like an ownership squat or lunge. But they are lunging and squatting in various patterns. I'm not telling them what to do. They are choosing what to do. You can tell an athlete that is hyper-constrained, for example, that is looking down at their feet and knees because they're making sure that, for example, in a knee uh, ACL situation, God forbid if their knee goes into valgus, right? So that right there tells me, okay, I need to try to start to get them more sensitive or perceptually aware to their environment right away. So that is one of the first areas that I will start. I need to have them aware of what's going on because if they're looking down at their feet and I've got to get them ready to play, I had this happen to a, a soccer athlete from a return to play ACL same thing. She would always look down. That's not good because that means that athlete is going to be over relying on their own internal system yeah. and not perceiving what's going on. So that's not good. Yeah. We, we, we can all yeah. acknowledge internal, that. That internal focus. Yeah. Yes. Not, not great. Yeah. Exactly. And so I need to start using externally driven language. I need to start trying to get them to perceive the environment around them. It could be something as simple as like that soccer player. Hey, let's just pass the ball. Or, hey, I want you to, to, to look at me while you're doing this warm-up, right? So mm-hmm. that would be the first place that I would start. In that communication with the physical therapist, I will also have an idea of what stage we are right, in their rehab. So let's just say they're working on, they're starting to incorporate lateral agility. We'll just say a lateral change of direction. Most of the time, that may look like an icky shuffle on a ladder, which, which we would not do. That might look like a, a stop at a cone simple thing that you could do is remove that cone, 
get a body in there and have that person stop where I am. So for example, if they're shuffling towards me, I could vary where I'm at and have them stop when they get close to me, right? And so by doing that, they are now looking at my body kinematics, right? Because ultimately, that is going to be one of the determining factors of what that athlete does. Like the Mm. soccer player I just work with, right? She is, if she's working on that, she needs to be able to perceive something that is going to tell her that this is a good time to stop, or this is a good time to change direction. I might progress that. And instead of having her cut and stick, stick with that cut, I might run after her, chase her, which is going to lead to a sharper angle. And so we're achieving this biomechanical output, this thing that we all want, but in a way that is a little bit more relevant. So that kind of goes into this idea of representative Mm -hmm. design, which essentially means you take the sport, right? And work backwards. If a 10 out of 10 is this girl's soccer game, 11 v 11 with crowds in the stands traveling in California, how can I work backwards and make it a little bit more relevant and slowly become more and more relevant that I can in my setting? So that way she doesn't jump from a level zero, which Sorry, I consider a speed ladder level zero for when it comes to relevancy to a level 10. And so that's how I I might start. I might look at the task that she ultimately has to do. And then how can I reconstruct without decomposing, without degrading it so the information is no longer relevant? I'm not having her stop at, at a foam roller. I'm not having, it's still relevant. My body, my positioning, the base of support that I have, my hips drop, right? That is kind of a, a signal for her to change direction. Um, mm. I can deconstruct it to where it's still relevant, but not overwhelming. It's not a 10, it's a two or a three. Yeah. If, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So within that, how are you gauging or instructing the athlete? How, like, I guess fast to go. Cause I think that's a concern with stuff like that of, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they're responding to you, if you're chasing them, if they, you know, are unaware of when the cut is going to occur, mm-hmm. even though they might be able to do it at pretty high speeds on a cone. If that when, when it happens, you know, again, they're not going to maybe be able to do that when they don't know what's coming. How do, how do you gauge that? How do you prescribe or how do you give instruction on the overall speed of the activity? That's a great point, and uh, I'm glad you brought it up because that is a concern, right? We yeah. don't want things to be overwhelming, right? And that's like yeah. a, a little bit of a misconception about the ecological approach and some of these modern approaches that it's just all or nothing, and, and that's not the case. Simple. I mean, you could in guide what we would call their att- attention and in- intentions of the athlete, right? I can tell them, hey, your intention, we're just playing. We're just flowing, right? It's just going nice and easy, right? That can be difficult to get an athlete to go less than 100%. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Another easy one is just constraining your space, limiting the amount of space you have. Because if you run the same activity over 15 yards and allow that athlete to build up speed, that is going to be a higher velocity movement. So simple solution. We're just going to do a five-yard box. They're not going to be building up enough speed to where you're going to be putting up, putting them in a situation they could be injured. So those are two ways that we do it. Another thing to consider is uh, usually the example I alluded to earlier with the football player. If it's me in there going against him, he's 230 pounds. You've met me. You know I'm not a big dude, right? So I'm 165 on a good day with a few rocks in my pockets. You know what I mean? I'm not the biggest guy. And with me, it's a little less stressful. We -hmm. have this relationship, a little more representative. Now, what did I do? I'm out of the picture. 
Brandon, you're in, you're a 230, 40 pound Oregon commit. You're me. Yeah. That's yeah. a different level of stress and anxiety, sure. right? Than having little old me in there. Yeah, but you're shifty. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Thank you for acknowledging that on record. That's very true. There's probably footage somewhere in an old sport movement skill conference of you probably just like juking me out of my shorts. I'm, <laughs> I'm almost confident of that. <laughs> so let's keep going with this then. All right. We're kind of staying within pretty simple activities here of a cut, a stop, whatever it may be. Where do we go from here? What does the process look like again with the goal of getting them into their sport full go? So what does that process look like to getting them back to yep. sport? Yep. Yeah. And I, so just like we're imagine, imagine this dial, right? And where this dial is at what I alluded to earlier, this level of representativeness. I think it's very important for a coach to map out what that could look like. Like what elements, you know, you could say constraints, what elements, just let's not even say, let's just say it's what elements of the sport can you bring in with that athlete? Can you bring in a level of contact? Because soccer, there's going to be contact. For example, mm-hmm. it could be for this soccer player. She's a defensive uh, player. I'm not a soccer player, but I can offer her some level of contact. So her job was to dispossess the ball, right? And she's bumping into me and I'm trying to put up a fight. She's strong. She's low to the ground. She's hacking at my hips and, and giving me a good battle. She's a very good athlete. But that is a level of contact that we can start to introduce, right? That is more representative than her dribbling up and down the, our turf. You know, we'd be mm. lucky to have a, a good sized turf. That might sure. be something that's a little bit more representative. You can always add in a body, right? You can add in multiple people. Uh, a lot of the times I feel like coaches who dive into this, whether they're in the rehab return to play space or not, we get stuck on this idea of just mirroring. You know, we are going to mirror somebody and that's great. That has a place. But how often are you mirroring someone for 10 seconds in sport? It's not very often. And right. so adding people to that, right? Adding more variability, adding different starting positions are all ways where you can try to get closer again to some of the elements or constraints, some of the factors that you're going to see. So that, that, that dial if we're imagining turning it up, you're ratcheting it up, ratcheting it up, ratcheting it up. You have to consider your space. You have to consider what resources you have, but there's no reason that dial can't be turned up a little bit. And as they get closer to sport, you should try to get as close as possible. Is it realistic to get 10 out of 10? Maybe not, but can you get as close as possible? So that bridge is not a chasm. It's just a little bit of a leap for that athlete. And you can maybe guide Yeah. The soccer yeah. coach, which is what I've mm-hmm. done with with the athlete's soccer coach, I talked to her. Hey, this is what she can start doing in practice. You guys do small sided games, great. Let's start doing those. Yeah, in a well, I mean, that's space. The, you you just don't want them to to yeah view going back to practice as this huge leap. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want them to be. Don't let practice be what we're talking about here. That's too late. It's too, it's too late. It's too pressure filled. It's too chaotic. They're being evaluated by coaches. That cannot be a return to play protocol, even though, yeah, well, we've seen some practice activities. They're not relevant at all. No. We've all seen those things. Yes. So, you, yeah, they have to be confident, I would think. You want them to be very confident. You want them to ideally have no really reservations about that process. But heaven forbid they get to this, get to competition and they're not 
fully ready from a psychological perspective, confidence level. Like good friend of mine, man, he, I don't know really anything about his RTP process, but like he was after a second ACL tear was back on the field in six months in competition. Wow. Towards ACL on the first play back. Mm. Like that cannot happen. No. Okay. Here's, I guess my question listening to you talk. How are you assessing progress here? How are you assessing or gauging that the athlete is progressing and getting closer and getting more comfortable both mentally, but also like assessing if the affected area, the tissues, because that's as a strength and conditioning coach and someone who did not have a sports, does not have a sports med background. That's what I was always just very cautious of is like, I do I know the tissues are ready? How are the tissues handling what I'm throwing at them? I don't want to overdo it on that front yet. We also know there's got to be a level of overload to adapt. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, give the listener an idea of how you are assessing that whole process of, yep, we can keep ramping up. We can keep ramping up. We can keep making this more representative. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. Again, like, like, Tissue resiliency is very important. It, it is very mm-hmm. important and something we should try to achieve. I do want to comment on just how you go about that. I, I, I think that traditional lifts, lunges, squats, split squats, stuff that we all do, great. We'll just take a, or it could be, let's take a, a different, we've talked about lo, lower body a lot. Let's talk about shoulder, right? I've yeah. had a volleyball athlete, libero. Think of a libero as a defensive specialist diving out and getting a ball, right? And that's how she dislocated mm-hmm. her shoulder. You can do a lot of these exercises. You can do your typical shoulder rehab to your blue in the face. You can hit a band as much as you can. But what about strengthening them in some positions that are similar to what they experience? So for example, you can strengthen someone at end range with a shoulder injury, maybe even a weight-bearing end range exercise, obviously assuming they've gone through a lot of stuff, that is going to probably give them a little bit of confidence because that is a similar position of which they tore their shoulder. They dislocated their shoulder. So I do think bringing some of that understanding of sport movement, sports are ugly, but yet we train pretty all the time, right? <laughs> we train to look good on Instagram, but we need to train that ugly zone a little bit. That's, that's something that we need to get into. So even from the strength and conditioning standpoint, obviously within safe confines, but I do think that is important. You said confidence earlier. I think that's a kind of a, a little bit of an excuse where people will say, well, I, I don't want my athletes to fail because you know, I want them to be confident. So you want them to not fail with you, but then fail in the field or fail in the court or fail wherever. I I don't buy that. I think when you progress it well, you can give that athlete Mm -hmm. an incredible amount of confidence. At some point, that failure rate should probably increase a little bit. The way we view sport movement and the way we view an athlete's progress is a lot of the, it's kind of through the lens of problem solving. Are they able to solve more complex problems? And this is the eye. This is the art. This is coaching the coaching eye, right? You cannot replace it. There's no protocol that's going to tell you how to do that. This is understanding sport movement, understanding theory, and just being able to watch and be present and shut up and not talk, right? That's part of it. And so if I'm watching this athlete and he's starting to utilize that affected limb, going back to the football one more aggressively, that's a good sign. And he's doing it in a way that's relatively unplanned. If he's doing it in a way that's a more of a complex problem. He's now catching the ball. There's Brandon, big Oregon commit and me, you know, he is Mm -hmm. running routes, right? We got to get him in their environment. We can bring in other stuff. Could he wear a helmet? Because 
that's going to affect your visual field, right? But that is what he's yeah. going to play. He's not going to be playing uh, without a helmet. So these are things sure. that you can do to progress and then kind of assess if that athlete is solving more complex movement problems. The other thing, talk to your athletes, ask them. <clears throat> I used to ask Nason, the, this football player, you should ask him, do you feel like we, how close did we get to football? Do you feel like that challenged you? Like he is going to give me more information. I'm not him. And so yeah. just yesterday, another kid that I have, I had this problem set up and he said, hey, you know what? We do like a bubble screen in our turf with in a one of one. He's like, you know what? I wouldn't be able to really cut back because there's going to be people flowing in that direction. He's like, oh, okay. Say no more. Yeah. You know the sport better than I do. You're the one that's playing. And so we changed it up a little bit to make it a little bit more realistic and representative form. So there's a lot of ways. Unfortunately, there's not one way and it makes people, yeah. I think, a little bit uncomfortable, but that's where the protocols matter, but everybody is different. And we have to accept that each athlete is going to progress and perceive the world their own way. Have there been times when you realized your progression was not appropriate or the, yeah, the way in which you tried to, you know, introduce relevancy was maybe too fast or yeah, just not appropriate. Have you ever experienced those? And how did you realize that? Luckily, off the top of my head, I can't really think of too many movement or too many times where I've gone too fast. If anything, mm -hmm. I realize I've probably gone too slow, to be quite honest, where I've been like, you know what, I probably could have been a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, aggressive with them. I mean, you know, there's so many factors when it comes to returning from an injury, just a, a quick story of that football player. The first day that we went out on the field, right? We had a group of athletes who was competing against other athletes and he puts on his cleats. He's warming up. I'm already a little bit nervous. And then, yeah, yeah you know what I mean? I, you know I mean? I'm yeah. nervous, right? How's Cause this gonna go? I, yeah. How's this going to go? Then he says to me, Oh, I haven't worn these cleats since I tore my ACL. And I was like, oh. And you're like, and bro. Instant sphincter type, I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm just imagining the, the the guy sweating, the gif of the guy sweating. Like, that's you. Yeah, yeah. that's me. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Oh, no. You know, and and the session was fine. He was a little shaky mm -hmm. at first, right? But mm -hmm. I, I just, we started off easy. And then yeah. as he got confident, you know, one or two sessions, he was fine. And, you know, knock on wood, he's healthy. He committed to, to, to his college and he's hopefully yeah. going to have a very healthy and, and long career. But there's just so much that goes into it. And I think a big part is just understanding that relationship with the athlete and being able to embed them within the process. Tyler, our mutual friend, talks about this co-adaptive relationship, right? Yeah. Co-adaptive relationship between me or insert practitioner, coach, whatever, and the athlete. It is a ongoing two-way street. It is not set in stone. And that's where I think the communication part is huge. Yeah. And so if you're unfamiliar with Tyler, he's referencing Tyler Yearby, who is a previous guest on this podcast. We did an episode on enhancing movement skills for American football. So definitely go check that out. And Tyler talks a lot about these concepts only in a non-injured person. This is like, they're not injured, but how do we maximize their movement skills in, in the heat of battle, so to speak? But that's, what's, that's what I've, I think is unique about the more ecological approach to things. And that viewpoint is like, it is a relationship is you as the coach do not know all the things like you don't know. Yeah. You don't have all the answers. So how can you always tell an athlete, move this way, move that way, do this, do that. Let's work together. And if you have 
you know, you have your expertise, which you can sometimes provide and the athlete has their expertise that they can provide. And that's just a unique athlete centered, Mm -hmm. I guess is probably what most people would be familiar with versus like, you know, we've all, you kind of referenced it earlier with your rehab scenarios. I know how you're, you should move so that you need to move in this way every single rep. And if you are aberrant from that, you're going to risk re-injury. Well, eventually we know that actually is the opposite Mm -hmm. effect where if you're, if an athlete can only move it in one way and they have zero, zero bandwidth in their movement variability, <laughs> then they're actually more at risk. So anyway. Can I comment on one, one thing about that? Yeah, too? go for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think, and I, it, I'm glad <laughs> you're bringing this point up because it's a, there's this a difference between how you view your role as a coach. Uh, and it's a fundamental difference between people that are kind of adopting this more modern approach and then people that are not. And I think as a coach, we have to reposition our role. Are we a you know lead from the front? We're going to impart this knowledge on our athlete. I have this set of skills and I'm going to show you exactly how to do it. Or are we a guide from the side? And as that, I'm going to work with my athlete and help them yeah. discover the best solution to various problems that works for them. And I think that is just a fundamental difference. And if you think about you know our experiences your experience as a coach or as an athlete, which coaches did you identify with the best? The ones that allowed you to have, they may not have been ecologically driven, the ones that allowed you to have a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more ownership, or the ones that kept you straight and narrow and you never did anything that deviated in any sort of way. When we think about athletes who are the most creative, they don't always do things the right way, right? The textbook way. Do you allow for that? And I think that's where as a coach, you still have a role, but it's redefining yeah. your role in a different way. And I think that is at mm-hmm. the crux of this dichotomy. Yeah. You definitely find that, have to find that Goldilocks zone of what's the right mix there. And I that that resonated with me because like, yeah, as an athlete, I I was too focused on the right way to do something. Which is we all have athletes who are like that. They're just like Oh, if I get, if I perfect all the technical things that I possibly can perfect, if I do it the exact right way, quote unquote, I will be a better athlete. And I needed, I honestly needed a coach who pushed me out of that. Who, but I mean, this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, these ideas weren't really prevalent, especially in, in America. But yeah, I would have been better off had I had a coach that was like, no, you know, you need to take some ownership or, you know, don't. You, you be a problem solver is it, I guess yes. or put me in scenarios to solve problems rather than worrying too much about my base of support and body angles in my five ten five. Absolutely. <laughs> same, same here. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's why this approach overall, I think is gaining steam from that perspective alone. Cause you, the disconnect of being able to perform certain activities and that fact that they don't seem to correlate well at all to in-game performance, people feel that disconnect for sure. So if you are someone who's listening to this and you want to dive deeper, if you want to experience these things like firsthand, there's a number of different ways that you can and that Emergence is, does offer and will offer. So, you know, Javi already mentioned that Emergence has online courses. They've got, you know, big meaty ones where it's going to take you all to, to go mm-hmm. through. There's some shorter ones, such as the weight room one that Javi mentioned. There's a warm up one that's really good. That even if you're like 
not interested. This is it's just going to give you good things to use for your athletes and your clients. But here very soon, so we're recording this currently in the beginning of August, but in the beginning of October, there will be the annual Sport Movement Skill Conference. So Javi, why don't you go ahead and just talk a little bit about that and what people can expect? Absolutely. So Sport Movement Skill Conference, it's been, I think, five or six years, maybe we met at that conference. And no, I think yeah, we might've met at a baseball no, we conference. We met at Rob Gray's yes. uh, free one. In, yes, we did. Yeah, that was cool. In, uh, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we've interacted at multiple sport movement skill conferences. It, it's, you know, obviously I'm biased, but if you want to really learn from people who are applying this in a number of different ways, I mean, there has been some of the very best researchers and people that are more on that side, like Keith David, Duarte, Araujo, who, you know, look up them on, on PubMed and you'll find a million articles from them. You know, people like Carl Woods in, in the past, all the way down to people who work with, you know, MMA, jujitsu, people that work with basketball, people that work with football. So people that are applying some of these modern concepts at multitude of levels, that will be more of, so we're going to do like 20 to 25 minute TED talks. So we're going to really dive deep into certain topics. So as opposed to giving everybody, because like you mentioned earlier, some of the stuff is really meaty. We're going to try to do as relevant, topic-driven, going deep in, in one or two topics as possible. So that's going to be a virtual side. That's going to be October 6th and 7th. That is going to be in the morning. It's everything Central Standard Time. I'm sure the, I can send you the link to post in, in the show notes. But yeah. that's going to be, as of right now, 8 a.m. Central Time. And then at, and at 2 p.m., that's on Friday and Saturday. But in addition to that, this year, in Minneapolis, which uh, October is a good time to go. It's not too cold yet. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. I'm, I'm thinking it will be. We're going to be doing an applied, an on-field application because we feel like that is where some of the ideas are missing. Yeah. Where people understand some of it, but they just don't know how to apply it. So we're going to peel back the curtain. We're going to lift under the hood and we're going to really like, we're going to grind. We're going to look at whatever your setting is and we're going to kind of give you an on-field on court, whatever, probably on field practical, yeah. where you can then take away and become a better coach immediately. So we're going to do that for two days as well. There's also going to be a social component where we're going to go and go out, have a couple of great Minnesota beers, and then also be able to talk with us, myself, Sean Mishka, Tyler Yerby, yeah. and, and also Rich is, is going to be there in addition to a number of other people to be able to pick our brains and discuss how we can apply those ideas, how you can apply those ideas to your setting. So I'm really excited because I think it's a unique concept where there is going to be, you know, if, if you're not going to be able to make it totally fine, do the virtual side, here's some of the best speakers in the world at their craft. And then you're going to hear, you're going to be able to go and actually experience it in person. It's something I wish I had, to be honest, because I struggled quite a bit fumbling my way through a lot of these concepts yeah. and having Sean Same say here. these strains concept to me and not knowing what yeah. the hell he was talking about. <laughs> Just try to apply based on what Sean is telling you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now you actually get to see how he does it, right? You, you get to see how uh, yeah. he does it and, and how we do it in our own way. So I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, the link to that sign up registration in the show notes, link to all of emergences courses, Javi has written several articles on this topic that are also on the Emergence website. So all that will be linked. And, you know, I hope I can make it. I don't know if I will. My baby number two will be about a month old at that point. So we'll see if I can make it up to, to Minneapolis. But although I will say this, most people have a good Minnesota beer. And our Sean Mishka will probably have some kind of fruity beer. drink with an fruity umbrella. I, I've witnessed this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, he's, yeah he's, uh, I, I, it doesn't add up. 
doesn't add up, but hey, that's him. We're all unique, I guess. Yeah, and we and but that's why we love him. That's yeah. why we love him. So, Javi, man, thank you so much for your time today, and yeah, hopefully see you and talk to you soon. Absolutely, thanks, Corey. This is a blast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.